Trigger warning, this podcast contains discussions about alcohol addiction and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and welcome back for another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Ben, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. My special guest for this episode is Nick Davis. Nick is a musician, sometime actor, and mental health advocate. Myself and Nick connected through great friend event, Charlie Roebuck. Nick has lived with depression throughout various stages of his life and is currently recovering from an alcohol addiction. What helped him massively in getting back on his feet was the amazing work of Leeds-based drug and alcohol addiction service, Forward. As a musician, music therapy has also provided a lifeline to Nick and allowed him to channel his experiences into something creative. To help himself and help others with similar experiences to him, Nick set up Music from the Attic a friendly and welcoming space where musicians get their old instruments back out of the attic and start playing again. All of that and more are on the menu. This is how our check-in went. Nick, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. For the listeners, we connected through great friend event Charlie Roebuck, who told me all about your story and the fantastic work you're doing in your community to help others with their mental health. So I had to get you on for a chat. First off, how are you? And how are you coping with this very weird new normal we are living in? I'm very good, thanks, Freddie, at the moment. I've been not locked down, but I've been in France for the last three weeks now. I'm fortunate to have a place to stay in here, a place I've been coming to since I was a kid, really. And it's like therapy for me just being here. I decided to head over. I knew that there could be possible quarantines. I arrived here at 5.30 on Friday morning put my iPad on and the first thing I saw was quarantine, a distinct possibility for those returning from France. I thought, oh dear. And then a week later it was confirmed. So I've just stayed put for now. And you know what? Mentally, it's been so therapeutic for me. It's like my second home here. There are no pressures. I've got everything I need with me. I've got my guitar. I've brought loads of books. I've been doing lots of reading. I've got my dog with me, my faithful friend. And it's cheap living here. I'm living quite frugally, but once you're here, it's no no more expensive than being at home. So, uh, yeah, I'm in a pretty good place at the moment. You've picked me at the right time. We've got a lot to get through, so shall we just get started? Let's start the pod, Nick, by talking about music from the attic and the work it does in West Yorkshire. So firstly, how did it all start and why did you feel inspired to give it a go? It all started by a conversation in the pub, funnily enough, when I was still drinking. It must have been about four and a half years ago now. Chatting to a couple of friends and one said, oh, I used to play a bit of this, I used to play a bit of that and so on. I had two guitars at home that were just sitting in the corner gathering dust. And that night I got home and I thought, wouldn't it be great just to get people together playing their instruments again, just for fun and helping each other along. And that night I was lying awake in bed and I'd just come up with the name Music from the Attic and, you know, getting your instruments out of the attic and dusting them off and starting playing again. I've got a good friend who was a lead city councillor. She pointed me in the direction of funding. She thought it was a great idea, a good community project. Got a bit of funding to get it off the ground, started putting the word out. But I think the key thing really was getting a fantastic guy to head it up and run it for us, a professional musician called Rich Huxley from a band called Hope and Social. I knew Rich vaguely from the past through seeing his band, And he said he'd love to get involved. He lives locally. It was something close to his heart. 
we started off with about 10 people coming on a weekly basis and now we've got regular members of 20 to 25 people all ages all abilities various instruments that get together every monday night at my cricket club kurtzell cricket club or we were doing before lockdown and play you know we've been going just over four years now even though i say it myself we've actually got pretty good we've played gigs all over the place the best thing for me though fred is the therapeutic effect it's had on so many people if i'm honest that wasn't the original intention it was just something for me to get back into my music but we've got such a diverse range of people that come along and like i say all ages and so on when i put a new bid in for funding a couple of years ago i was asked what positive effect it's had on people so i asked our members to send me an email anonymously telling me how it's helped them and the feedback i got was phenomenal helping people get over bereavements long-term illnesses mental health issues divorces separations work pressures all the day-to-day stresses that everybody suffers, including addictions as well. And the range of ways it had helped people was just phenomenal. And that, for me, that's the thing I'm proudest of, really, the way that it's just helped everybody. And also the way it's helped develop new friendships amongst a group of people who may not usually come into contact with each other. I've been involved in sport for many, many years, mainly cricket. So I've been involved in a team environment for a long time. So I know from past experience, how being involved in team sports, one of the great things about it is the friendships that you form with people sort of from all sorts of walks of life. And it's been the same as music from the attic. It's just helped us all so much. Confidence-wise, you can see people's confidence grow. People turn up initially and they're a bit, oh, I'm no good at this, I'm no good at that. I don't like performing on my own, but we've got members now that perform solo performers duos go to open mic nights organize their own open mic nights write their own music it's just brilliant the way it's brought people out themselves and given that boost and that energy in life in all sorts of ways off air we spoke about the power of music therapy and you said that there is this universality aspect to music therapy which means it can help more people than other forms of therapy or self-care tools like literature or sport which as beneficial as they are not everyone will be interested in I think music is probably the one thing, the one form of art that everybody has got some form of interest in. There's such a broad range of music, as we know. I've never heard anybody say, oh, I don't like music. There's always some form of music you can like. I've heard people say, I don't like theatre. I don't like sculptures. I don't like paintings. I don't like books. I don't like this, that and the other. And I don't like sport, all sorts of things. But I think music everybody can buy into some form of music and it can get directly to the soul and to the feelings of people. So yeah, music therapies helped me a heck of a lot throughout life, particularly in my journey through my mental health issues and my recovery from alcohol addiction issues. When I was in rehab, one of the things that all of us enjoyed most were the music therapy sessions where each week, I was in rehab for three months, each week in music therapy, we had to pick a song that tapped into a certain emotion. It could be something from your childhood, something that reminded you of your friends, of your drinking days, of happy days, of sad days. And each week, each of us in the group, I was in a group of four, had to pick a particular song and talk about it. And I mean, in all the sessions we did in rehab, you dug deep into your past and into your emotions to get your stories out about your past problems from your past. But music therapy dug up more raw emotion, feelings, and so on than any other session. There were more tears shed in those sessions, not just by the person picking their song, 
but by the others in the group as well and sometimes the counsellor because it just had that huge impact on people so yeah i think music therapy is incredibly important also during lockdown because well first of all we've not been able to meet as music from the attic so we've been doing that on good old zoom i mean i spend a lot of my time going to groups at a wonderful center called five ways in leeds which is part of forward leeds drug and alcohol rehabilitation center and we do self-help groups all sorts of workshops not just based on recovery and getting over addictions but things like creative writing music drama etc etc and obviously with lockdown that facility was closed but we've been holding mutual aid meetings on zoom and one thing that we instigated early on in lockdown was running a music therapy session once a week on a similar basis similar format to what we did in rehab where people had picked three songs talk about them and once again that just brought out so much in people so it's worked in that direction as well just chatting to people during lockdown about your problems and issues through the power of music since you started this journey nick you talked about there a bit of your proudest achievements with getting people to come out of their comfort zone and getting people to kind of reignite their love of music through music from the attic you recently did an interview on bbc news which i'm sure that's up there as one of your proudest achievements and what others have there been kind of during this journey I think the BBC News thing, that was last Sunday, and that was, yeah, I mean, looking back now, that's been so beneficial, not just to me, but I know to lots and lots of other people. When I was approached to do it, it was Forward Leads, who I just mentioned, a part of the Humankind charity. And the BBC approached Humankind, saying that they wanted to do a story about the effects of alcohol in lockdown, the way that more and more people have been relying on it and trying to access the services offered by alcohol and drug rehabilitation places. I've done one or two interviews on behalf of Forward Leads over the last few months for newspapers, magazines and so on, and radios. So they asked if I'd do it. I was in two minds because one big thing that's helped on this journey, I mean, I've now been sober for 18 months, which is the longest period of my life. One of the main things that's helped me get to this point is the fact I've just been completely open and honest with everybody in my life about what I'm going through. In the past, I've failed attempts in the past to get over addiction. I'd always made excuses as to where I'd been when I'd been in detox, as to why I wasn't having a drink, oh, I'm on antibiotics, so I'm, I'm driving, I'm this, that and the other. But this time around, I just told all those close to me, all my friends through music, all my friends through cricket, everybody, what I was going through. And the support I got was nigh on 100% backing from everybody. But that's one thing, telling people close to home and those nearest and dearest to you. It's another thing going nationally and talking about it. So I was in two minds because, you know, you're never quite sure who will see it. But I thought, no, I'll go with it. I'll go ahead with my policy of honesty. And the feedback and response I've had has been nothing short of unbelievable. Straight away, last Sunday, my phone was going nonstop with messages, WhatsApps, Facebook messages, tweets, you name it from people who I knew, from people who I didn't know, saying that they'd got issues and they'd never realised it, they weren't quite sure, and how my interview, not just the clip that they showed on the TV, but there was a longer clip on the BBC website as well, how that had helped them and inspired them to do something about their issues. You know, I took time out to try and speak to as many people as possible. If they'd taken the trouble to track me down and contact me, the least I could do was to speak to them. It's still sinking in after it's less than a week ago. I'm extremely proud that I took that decision to do that. If it's helped save one life, and I'm sure it probably has, it's been worth it. But I know it's affected a lot more than that. It will have helped a lot more than that. I know that sounds very big-headed, but I don't mean it to come across that way. In my journey, I was really fortunate that when I was at my worst about 20 months ago, 
I had a very strong team of six people around me, my sister and five very close friends, one from music, one from cricket, people from the biggest parts of my life, really, who helps me get through things. And without their help, I probably wouldn't be talking to you now. Well, I wouldn't be. I know that. And there was one guy in particular. I've known him since I was a kid. Our families grew up together. He'd been in recovery for six years, and he used to literally help walk me into the doctors when I couldn't walk, my legs were too weak to walk, go out and get me supplies when I was desperate for more drink, spoon feed me at times when I hadn't eaten for days, clear up all the mess that was all over my flat, look after my dog. He did all these things, and I said to him, you know, and he won't mind me mentioning his name's Tony. I said, Tony, how can I ever thank you for what you've done for me? And he said, well, he says, people help me on my journey, so all you can do to thank me is, is help other people. And that's something that's always stuck in my mind. That's why I'm always willing to go out and help others if they need it. What do you think Music from the Attic has taught you about yourself? And going forward as well, Nick, what plans do you have for it post-COVID? You know, touch wood that we, we get to that stage. And how's the group grown since you started? Ooh, crikey, how's it helped me? It's, it's helped me in all sorts of ways. I've, I've developed so many new friendships for starters. And people that I've got extremely close to and people that helped me through my journey. I mean, I, I was normally able to get out for an hour whilst I was in rehab. I was in rehab in Leeds, so I was able to nip down to music from the attic for an hour. And obviously, I wasn't driving then, but people gave me lifts there and back and looked after me and so on. So the friendships have helped me immensely. Musically, it's just got me back into music again. You know, I've spent so much of my time now either playing my guitar. I've started, I started writing songs about two years ago now and that was through music from the attic that was through rich huxley and every now and then we have master classes at music from the attic where we get an expert in the field to come in and give us a, a session on it could be percussion it could be vocals it could be this that the other and i suggested to rich one day we were just having a chat about future master classes and i said what about a songwriting master class he said well why, what makes you say that i said well I've always written, but I've never written a song. I'd love to be able to write a song. And he said, he said, well, I can help you with that. And I said, great. And he said, well, have you started one yet? And I said, no. He said, well, that's what you've got to do first. He said, and the next thing is, you've got to finish it. And I thought, oh, great advice. You know, you've got to start it, and then you've got to finish it. Well, that night, I was flicking through some old notes on my phone for something or other, and I came across something I'd typed into my phone a couple of years before. And my dad had moved house. He'd, he'd gone into a home. So I had all these old papers and files in my garage and I was sorting through them. And I came across a handwritten 12-line poem in my mother's handwriting. My mother had died in 1997 of breast cancer and she was just such a huge part of my life, as mothers are. But the poem was about her father, my grandfather, who died when I was 14. And my grandfather, my papa, was, he was the biggest male influence on my life and still is. And this was a 12-line poem just called To Daddy With Love by my mum, about my granddad, so by about the woman who'd been the biggest influence in my life, about the man who'd been the biggest influence in my life. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if the first song I ever wrote contained some of my mum's lyrics? So I put those lyrics as the bridge to my song, called the song Mongrel Dogs in Heaven, and wrote verses before and after about me and my granddad, me growing up, and, you know, I hoped I'll meet him again, he'll see the the man that I have become. So yes, that's how I wrote my first songs. But going back to your original point, without music from the attic, I would never have got into songwriting. Songwriting I find very therapeutic as well. It gets my feelings, my emotions, my thoughts out. 
a lot of the things I've written about have been about recovery, about my self-consciousness, I suppose, about the facade that we all put up at times. You know, there's one song I've written called I'm Not The Man You Think I Am. We go through life, whether we're suffering from mental health issues or not, we put on a persona to people. And I've always come across to other people as always happy-go-lucky, on the go, always confident. Life always been a joy, and it's a front I've always put on for years. And obviously, I've not always been like that. Much of the time when I've been putting on this front, I've been hurting badly deep inside and very unsure of myself and very unconfident. But it's a bit like an actor, I suppose, isn't it? How you actors put on this front. They're not how they am. So yeah, Not the Man You Think I Am was based on that. And all sorts for the songs as well. But not just songs, but poetry. It's just good for getting your emotions out and letting go of your feelings instead of having those feelings screwed up in your mind. Getting them out on paper just takes that burden off you. Confidence as well. I mean, my confidence has grown through music from the attic. I mean, I've never, ever performed on my own before. I mean, I used to call my guitar playing, and I hope I can say this, I'm sure I can, that it was my alternative form of masturbation because I just used to do it entirely for self-pleasure, always on my own, own, locked in a room, away from everybody else. I never used to like other people hearing me play my guitar. So yeah, it was a solitary thing. But now I love playing in front of other people, whether it's on my own with the whole Music from the Attic crew in a duo or whatever, recording my own stuff and so on. It's, I just love it. And it's helped me a lot through lockdown. One important, probably the key thing that you're told when you're in rehab or in recovery is not to isolate yourself, to get out and about, to meet people, to go to group meetings and so on. Because as addicts, as users, as drinkers, we tend to do it when we're shut away on our own, when it gets to the worst stages. So, you know, we're advised strongly not to isolate. Now, of course, back in March, we had to isolate. And that became a huge issue for all sorts of people, not just people in recovery, either new term or long term in recovery, but people who, as I touched on earlier on, were, were starting to realise that maybe they had a problem and were leaning on a crutch too much. So it was important during isolation to have plenty of interests and to have things to keep you going. And for me, music and playing my guitar and writing songs took a heck of a lot of my time. It was just brilliant. You know, without music, without my dog, which kept me active, lockdown would have been incredibly hard. And I know it's helped all sorts of other people during lockdown as well, in all sorts of ways. You asked me how I see music from the attic progressing post-lockdown. Well, I hope we can get back to normal again. I mean, we have over the last few weeks been recording a song. We wrote a song collectively about a year ago called See What I Can See. Basically, it's about Yorkshire. It's about Leeds. We made it home. We made it our own. It's a fantastic song with about 20 of us writing it together. And we all put our ideas into the pot and did a bit of a brainstorm. Came up with this song. Whenever we've played it, at gigs it's always gone down extremely well and we decided to record it remotely so we had 20 odd of us sending in various recordings i mean i sent in five different tracks so rich huxley's been producing it and mixing it has had over 100 tracks to work from and he played it back to us over zoom last monday night and it sounds phenomenal it sounds unbelievable he's just putting some final tweaks to it we had recorded stuff in the past cover songs in a studio but this will be our first original recording and and what we'd love is because it is about Yorkshire and about Leeds specifically about Leeds but it's about God's own country we'd love for you know maybe August the 1st next year when it's Yorkshire Day to get it to become a, an anthem for Yorkshire Day around the county that that'd be fantastic but yeah so hopefully moving on we can rec- write up more of our own stuff record more of our own 
stuff and get back to playing gigs again. I mean, last year, last July, we headlined the Kirkstall Festival, which was an amazing experience. Kirkstall's our home. The Kirkstall Festival attracts about 25,000 people throughout the day. I'm not saying there were 25,000 people watching that, us there, but there were a heck of a lot. That was a great experience. We played on the big stage at Millennium Square in August during the Leeds Independent Music Week. We played at the Lord Mayor's Charity Dinner, Leeds Compassionate City Awards at Civic Hall. All sorts of gigs, and I think all of us, most of us, miss that as well, just getting out and playing in front of people. So hopefully we can get back into that as soon as possible post-lockdown. And just finally, Nick, if there's anyone in Leeds or Yorkshire listening to this pod and would like to get involved and give it a go, how can they do so and where can they find you? They can find me, well, they can look us up on Music from the Attic. We're on Facebook, Music from the Attic. We're on Twitter, at Music from Attic. We have two groups now. I should have mentioned that about two years ago, we set up another group in Methley on the other side of Leeds. So they're sort of our sister group, if you like. Rich Huxley runs that one as well. They've got an amazing brass section there. Yeah, they've got a Facebook group as well. Or you can email me, nickdavis1 at hotmail.com or find me on Twitter at nickdavis underscore 18. But yeah, we're always looking for new members. Any ability, any age, any instrument. I can guarantee that A, you'll enjoy it and B, you'll feel better for it. We've talked about music from the attic. Let's talk about your journey in a bit more detail, Nick, and what we've alluded to in the previous topic. So firstly, why don't you tell me a bit about your early life, your teenage years, and and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Nick we meet here? My early life was a good one. I was blessed with a good family. I mentioned my mum and my granddad and I've got happy memories of doing all sorts of things, especially with my granddad. It was my granddad that got me into cricket, really. He took me to my first cricket match, Rosie's match at Old Trafford, way back when. And uh, and it was him that got me involved in playing cricket. So yeah, my childhood was good. School days were good. I was always okay at school. Obviously, sport was a big thing for me at school. Academically, I've always done enough in life academically to get through, just enough to scrape through, but did okay, got my GCSEs or O-levels as they were then, my A-levels. And yeah, great time at school, captain the cricket team in the football team and, and all the rest of it, age group cricket. All was great. You know, looking back now, the one thing I didn't have, and I know that this is something that's affected me, was a close relationship with my father. You'll notice I've mentioned my grandfather and my mother, but not my father. And he had his own business, the family business, which he was actually studying medicine. And he'd got into his sixth year at medical school when his father died very suddenly. So his brother was helping run the business and things weren't going too well. So my father's mother, my grandmother, asked my dad if he'd quit his studies and go into the business, which he did, and spent the rest of his working life there. And I think it's something he always regretted, but he was, he was a bit of a workaholic. Also drank quite a lot, not in an alcoholic way, but well, I didn't think so at the time. But we never had that father-son relationship, really. We never had that friendship, that bond. I really, really regret that. And then other things happened later, a bit later in my life with my father and with work, which looking back now had a massive effect on me. And it's something, to be honest with you, that's something that only really clicked with me about two months ago through a book I read by a psychotherapist called Catherine Taylor, who's based just outside Leeds, actually. And she'd written a book called Life or Lie, which I can recommend to anybody who's got mental health issues. It's quite an easy read. It's not a huge tome. It's a good, easy read about 
mental health in all sorts of areas with case studies examples so i can highly recommend that but something in Catherine's book struck a chord we may talk about later my childhood was great went to university and went over to manchester did business studies there still wasn't sure what i was going to do in life work-wise <laughs> once again scraped through that with a good old 2-2 because i enjoyed the high life at uni and we always called a 2-2 a good social degree just enough to get by but yeah plenty of sport at uni plenty of obviously going out plenty of going to gigs you know manchester's one of the best places in the country really to be a student if you like going to gigs particularly in the 80s when it was the hacienda scene and and all that was going on i mean that was a great time to be in manchester but yeah drank a lot then drank a lot throughout my life really you know and it was just always one of those things i mean even at school crikey we used to go out on a tuesday night was lads night out this was when i was in the sixth form and a few of us would go out mates who were still at school mates who'd left school would go out on a tuesday night and drink eight pints and think nothing of it going to school the next day that was just part of life and then it got to not just tuesday nights but most nights going out escalated at university but it was something i could always control and and keep a cap on and I say in moderation you know when I did go out it was always a big session but it wasn't something I had to do every single day but yeah childhood wise it was great plenty of friends plenty of interests like I say I didn't knuckle down to my studies as much as I could have done I've always been a bit frustrated by the fact that I've always been adequate at most things but not very good at any one specific thing and I've often thought wouldn't it be great just to be exceptional at cricket or exceptional at music or exceptional at writing and crap at everything else been a real jack of all trades a master of none and i sometimes do regret that i must admit and i think that prevented me from being too career driven whether that be in business in sport or in music because i was never exceptional in any of those areas you were interviewed in a really lovely piece in the yorkshire post about your recovery journey nick relating to your experiences with depression and alcohol you actually told me off air you were only diagnosed four years ago and you've lived with depression most of your life why don't we start at the beginning when did you first begin to experience depression looking back and how did that lead to your problems with alcohol were there any traumas or trigger points you can pinpoint that led to both these issues or not do you know it's a really good question it's something i keep asking myself about when i first realized i had mental health issues and i think you know if we're looking back in the 80s i'm not just in the 80s in the 90s and in the 2000s depression wasn't a thing it just wasn't spoken about if somebody was depressed they were just a bit down in the dumps mental health wasn't an issue nobody ever spoke about it looking back now and again through a lot of the reading i've been doing i've been reading all sorts of mental health books and psychotherapy books and so on you can trace back to things that did happen in the past and think crikey yeah that's a sign there that was something there but i think it really came to a crux in the mid 90s i'll just go back a little bit when i was in my late 20s i wanted to work abroad for a bit i went to work in indonesia in Jakarta for two years as a tax and investment advisor and it was for a friend or the brother of a friend actually over there and I just went out to help him set his business up initially he'd been working for somebody else and was setting his up his own business so I went over for three weeks just to help him set it up and market it and then he asked me to stay on as an advisor I said well I know nothing about it so we'll just learn as you go along so again me jack of all trades master of none I just bloody bluffed my way through it for a couple of years but the expat life I think I was born for it it was just fantastic there was something going on 
every night of the week. And obviously all of those revolve around drink. One of the big things over there in a lot of expat communities was an outfit called the Hash House Harriers that some listeners will have heard of. It's got nothing to do with a drug hash. It's a group for drinkers with a running problem. So basically you'd meet up once a week at a predetermined place. There'd be a paper trail on about a 6 to 10k run that you'd go on. You'd set off at the starting point, finish up at the same starting point. There'd be a beer truck there. You'd form a circle. You'd sing songs. You'd dob people in. And basically, by the end of the night, you were all paralytic. You paid 10,000 rupee, which was about six quid for that. You got your T-shirt for the run, as much beer as you could drink all night. That was just on a Monday. There was a ladies' hash on a Wednesday, which was nearly as bad. There were all sorts of different societies, St. Andrews, St. George's, St. Patrick's, St. David's. We set up our own Yorkshire Society because we thought we were missing out there. We actually got a barrel of Tetley's flown out for our inaugural Yorkshire Society do. But yeah, I mean, it was just literally drinking all the time. But it's such a great life. I'm still in touch with a lot of people now that I was with at the time over there. But things turned a bit sour work-wise there, not because of the drink, but it wasn't the right thing for me, the person I was working for. And right about that time, my father's brother, who he was in business with, he died very suddenly, very similar way to his father. He was only 55, 56, had a heart attack, died suddenly. And four weeks after that, my grandmother, their mother died. And they delayed my grandmother's funeral so I could fly home for it. So I got home and things had work-wise had been going very sour in Jakarta. And my dad said to me, listen, would you fancy staying on here and working in the family business for a bit? It was a big-ish business. I had about 40 to 50 employees, thermal insulation business. So it wasn't a huge outfit. It wasn't small either. But he said there are certain things that we could do with somebody in the family working on to do with the business because there were a lot of loose ends to tie up after my Uncle Peter's death. And you know what the strange thing is that when I was in Indonesia, we went to Bali one weekend, like you do. It sounds very flash, doesn't it? But it was only an hour's flight away. And it was over the Easter weekend. And on the Thursday night, well, I woke up, it was 3.30 on the Friday morning, good Friday morning. I'd had this really vivid nightmare that my dad had died. And I was back home clearing out his office. When I got home back to Jakarta on the Monday, it turns out my mother had been trying to phone me all weekend. I thought about this dream and I thought, oh my goodness. I phoned her up and she said, oh, I'm glad you've called. Your Uncle Peter died on Thursday night. And with the time difference, the time that I woke up, 3.30 on the Friday morning, was the exact time that he'd passed away, 9.30 on the Thursday evening. And I said, I don't believe it. I had a dream. I never told anybody that the dream was about my dad. But anyway, when I got back home and my dad asked me to go and work for the family business, the first job he asked me to do was clear out Peter's office which is the dream I'd had, which was pretty spooky. I ended up staying there for about four years and it was a dead end for me. I knew that I never wanted to take over the business. I think a lot of the other stuff there assumed I would do, but it just wasn't for me. You know, I'd specialised in marketing when I was at university as part of my business studies course. And I knew that working in this small Leeds-based family business wasn't for me. But I had a family duty. I stuck with it. I kept wanting to leave, but there was never the right time. And then one day my dad called me into his office. I was getting paid very little. I'd had to go and live back at home with my parents because um, the company couldn't afford to pay me that much. I couldn't afford any rent anywhere. All my friends from uni were going off and getting on the property ladder and forging great careers. And I'd sort of been left behind. One day my dad called me into his office and told me they were going to have to let me go because things were slack and there wasn't enough work to keep me on. They gave me, I don't know, a couple of months pile but i was this is the thing that struck me when i was reading katherine taylor's book and it's something that had never really occurred to me but how i've repressed this emotion for all these years about how incredibly let down i was by my father 
letting me go after I'd sort of, well, yeah, pretty much wasted in, in a way a good four years of my formative working career life, if you like, for the benefit of the family business. And then I was just tossed aside when they no longer needed me. I mean, during that period when I was living at home, obviously anybody that's still living at home in the late 20s, early 30s will know what it's like. It's not pleasant. So I'd be out nearly every night. I'd be at the pub. I'd be going clubbing. I'd be going anything just not to be at home. Being promiscuous, I could stay out of the girls' houses for the night or for weekends and so on. That was, again, just part of this slippery slope that I went down on the path to addiction. I did manage to pull things around. I got I got a job in advertising for a year or so. Enjoyed that, but it was very much burning the candle at both ends. Anybody that's worked in the media will know what it's like. And then I got a job with a magazine production company. And this was right at my street, part of independent newspapers, independent UK sports publications. They, they did various football magazines, monthly magazines for Tottenham, Spurs, West Ham. And they got the contract to do a monthly magazine for Leeds United. This was in 94. They wanted to open up a Leeds office for this publication. And again, the, the way best jobs come around, it's not by applying for them, it's by somebody you know. And a, a friend tipped me off about this, got in touch with the guys, they gave me the job. My job initially was just selling advertising space in a little office in Leeds for this publication. But within a short space of time, the editorial and every, everything was being handled out at Leeds. The team grew and grew, quickly took on other publications, Man City, Blackburn Rovers and so on. Blackburn had just won the Premiership at the time. And as part of the deal with all the clubs, we have a hospitality box at each of the grounds for entertaining clients. And again, talk about the perfect job. I'd be sitting in an office all day, all week long, talking about football, interviewing footballers weekends or on when Tuesday, Wednesday nights whenever there's a match, hosting the hospitality box at Main Road at the time he would park up, Elland Road with a free bar so uh, me being the genial host had to uh, enter into the spirit of things and drink as much as the clients. It was a stressful job it was a great job but it was just non-stop and eventually things caught up with me and that was when the drink first got out of control to the point where I was having to drink in the morning to steady myself before going into work I was having to keep bottles of vodka in the car to nip out to have a drink through the morning, at lunchtime, through the afternoon. Yeah, that's when things became a real problem. And it was probably early 1996 when I first went into a rehab place for four weeks because it just got too much. That was my first taste of uh, rehab in a priory clinic. It's fair to say that last year your drinking began to get much more severe. You say in the piece that by February 2019 you had hit rock bottom and you were drinking 24 hours a day. If you could just talk to me about this period of your life and was this increased level of drinking triggered by anything as well? The whole of that story really goes back about three or more years. I was married. I got married in 2000. I ended up sort of working as well with my wife. She was a partner in a quite large dental practice. So I ended up helping out, working there part-time, running the, the financial side of that. So that added a lot of pressure, sort of working with your wife. I was also involved in cricket then, working for Leeds Bradford MCC Universities, which was something I absolutely loved. I did that for over 15 years. Again, that was a part-time job. Things weren't right in the marriage. It was early in the marriage that I really started to notice my mental health and my depression. And like I said before, this was in the two, early 2000s when it wasn't a thing. And I remember trying to talk to my wife about it and it was, you know, you're not depressed, you can't be depressed. It's, you know, maybe drinking a bit too much and so on. But I knew it was more than that. Long story short, the marriage started to falter. I was subjected to quite a bit of bullying, for want of a better word, in my marriage, which is difficult for a man to admit to. But I was, it was very, very difficult at times. I'd keep going over the top with my drinking and then keep trying to stop again but it came to a head in it was September 2016 and ironically 
I was sitting pretty much exactly where I am now. We were outside the flat in France. We'd been going to couples counselling to try and get things right again with the marriage. But we were sitting here one day on holiday. My wife said, I don't want to be with you anymore, basically. And that hit me like a bit of a sledgehammer because although it was a difficult marriage in all sorts of ways, I didn't want it to end. Not helped by the fact we were working together. We were in the process of selling the dental practice anyway, which took up a lot of time. But she said, since we get home, want us to sell the house, do this, do that. And it was like, bang, 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 bang. And it was just like my world had crumbled around me. And the way I reacted to numb that pain was to drink and drink and drink. That's when I went back to spending periods where I'd just be lying in bed for days on end with bottles of vodka by the side of me. My wife moved out in the November. I had to move out in the January. But in the November, I was in such a bad way that my sister arranged me to go to a detox place at a private hospital in Harrogate. Spent nine days there just to get sober. But the problem there was that they said to me, your issue isn't your drinking, it's your mental health. That was probably the first time a mental health had been actually touched on. Throughout that period as well, I had had serious suicidal thoughts, I'd planned suicide, etc., etc. But I'd never been brave enough to do it. I used to call my drinking a partial suicide. I could kill myself for a few hours, for a couple of days, but not, you know, just forget. So I wouldn't be around. I'd just, all my problems would go because I'd be dead to the world. But then I'd wake up again, come round again, and the problems would still be there. So I'd do another partial suicide. But yeah, when I was on that detox, they said, no, it's not the drinking, it's your mental health. I know that, you know, the common thought is that alcohol is a depressive, which it is, which can lead to depression. But I do think that with me, it was the other way around. And that's now been reinforced by various experts since then, that it was the mental health, it was the depression that led to me relying on the drink to help me try and forget things or feel better, to boost my confidence, to help me get to work at times and so on. But it was a vicious circle. It was just your real catch-22. But when I was told that it's not the drinking that's an issue, it's your mental health, that's what I wanted to hear in a way, because I thought, oh, I can take medication to help with my mental health and, and I can still keep drinking, you know, great, whoopee. Which is what happened. I got on the medication, the doctor. I've, I've been really lucky throughout this journey over the last four years. My GP has been incredibly supportive. Still phones me up just to have a chat and have a check-in to see how I'm doing. So, yes, I started taking the medication and I'd stopped drinking. And things would feel okay again and I'd run out of the medication. I'd think, oh, I'm all right. I don't need it anymore now. So I'd stop the medication and then before you know it, I'd start feeling a bit down again. That's when I'd go and have another drink and then I'd be back to square one drink-wise. It was always that when I had my relapses, always tied in with when I'd stopped taking my medication. I ended up going for another detox at the wonderful St Anne's Alcohol Centre in Leeds for a week. That was over Christmas time, actually, which was particularly tough. In 2017, did a, a nine-day detox there then back out into the big bad world. A year later, as you touched on, 18 months ago, 20 months ago now, things spiralled again. The depression got worse. The medication had stopped. The drinking got worse. It was after, it was on the 27th of December, 2018. I went to see my ex-wife and my stepson to swap presents and so on. And it was great. We had a lovely day on the way home. But I had a lot of regrets about, reminded me of Christmas past and so on. And I was driving home, stopped at the garage to get some cigs. I had a special offer on Prosecco, of all things, four bottles for the price of three. And I thought, hey, you deserve a drink. You got through your birthday in December. You got through Christmas without having a drink. Surely you can just have a little drink over New Year. 27th of December, by the 28th of December, those four bottles were empty. I'd been able to get more. And that was the start of six weeks where I just literally 
couldn't get out of bed, couldn't get out of bed. Unless I was dragged out of bed by Tony, who I mentioned before, to take me to Forward Leeds Alcohol Drug Rehabilitation Centre, to my GP, to hospital. I was hospitalised a couple of times on New Year's Day. So this was only five, four or five days after I'd started drinking again. A friend of mine came round because people always knew when there was a problem because I'd go quiet on social media. I'd never answer my phone. And my friend came round to Fiona, came round to see me on New Year's Day and genuinely thought I was dead. Just couldn't rouse me, thought I was dead in bed. I probably very nearly was, actually. And that's when Team Nick, these six wonderful friends, got together to try and help me through it. But that took a lot of time. That took six weeks. But I did go on a reduction programme. When you stop drinking... When you've been drinking as heavily as I was, and I was drinking, I think we worked out at one point, it was 63 units a day, when the recommended amount is 14 units per week. The only time I'd go out of the house would be at 4.30 in the morning, something like that, to go down to the 24-hour co-op to get more supplies. You know, I'd get a taxi to come, I'd stumble out of the house. I used to go at that time in the morning so the neighbours wouldn't see me, nobody else would see me. But by doing that, I put myself into some extremely risky situations. You can imagine the sorts that hang outside 24-hour co-ops at 4.30 in the morning. I had issues with taxi drivers taking advantage of me, various other things. And how I never got completely beaten up, I don't know. You can't just stop drinking when you're on that much drink. If you stop just like that, the withdrawal can be so severe that you can go into seizure and you can die from them. So you do have to work on a reduction process, reduced by 10% every three days. So Team Nick used to come around, measure out my intake each day. And I did. I was desperate by this point just to get better. And I stuck to the reduction. I managed to get back into St. Towns on a detox program in February 2019. Did a week of the detox. But it was then that I decided that I really wanted to do the three months rehab program there. They couldn't fit me in for another eight weeks. So I spent that intervening eight weeks doing all the right things going to group meetings, fire forward leads at five ways, mutual aid meetings, just doing anything I could not to drink. Yeah, April the 12th, I got accepted into, I went to start my three-month rehab at St. Anne's in Leeds. And that is the best thing I have ever done. That three months there just changed me completely in all sorts of ways. And it was, I started the detox on the 12th of Feb, 2019. And at 7.30 that morning, I had my last drink and i've not had a drink since that date after this point and all the things that you've gone through there was a moment when your doctor said to you it was my last chance the next time i see you i don't want to be writing out your death certificate that's quite a kick up the ass to hear obviously you decided to detox and check yourself into a wonderful place called forward in leeds and since they began more than six thousand people have left forward leeds having achieved their treatment goals since the service was set up in july 2015 in the last financial year alone forward leeds have supported two thousand people for alcohol issues as many people as were seen by similar services in sheffield liverpool and manchester combined if there are any staff listening from forward to this pod nick or hopefully they are what would you say to them well, thank you is never enough, is it? I mean, these people at Forward Leeds and at Five Ways and at St Anne's Alcohol Centre, they're all linked together. They're just wonderful people, just absolutely wonderful people. Some have been through addictions. A lot of them have been through addictions in the past. They're in recovery themselves. Not all of them. Some of them aren't. But my key worker at Forward Leeds, Ian, he was just unbelievable. I mean, I saw him in all sorts of states. Absolutely. I can't remember some of the meetings with him. I had to be helped in there by Tony. I'd have to have a drink before I went in there. I'd been through forward leads before and then relapsed. But whenever you went back, they never made you feel like you were going back with your tail between your legs. You know, Very few people get over an addiction at the first attempt. I think 
I've read somewhere that the average is five or six attempts. So, you know, these people are used to people, to folk having to go back, but they just could not have been more loving, caring or supportive. They just completely go out of the way to help you. The advice they gave you was always solid and sound. They never judged you. They never judged you on your background, what state you were in when you get there. But again, we've mentioned my GP, but that particular day, I'd actually, I had an appointment to go and see him anyway. And that night I'd been throwing up blood. My friend Tony came round to take me from a doctor's appointment. I told my GP and he said, right, I'm getting you an ambulance now. And he called an ambulance, take me down to St. James's. And as I was leaving to get in the ambulance, he said to me, I'll mention his name, Dr. Grice, wonderful chap. And he says, Nick, you've got to do this. You've done it before. You can do it. He said, but the next time I see you, I don't want to be signing the death certificate. Talk about a kick up the backside. That was just, I thought, Jesus. Nobody had ever said that to me before. I knew that I was skating on thin ice at times, but I never realised it was the first time my doctor or anybody like that had said it to me and that was just like you know there were times when I didn't give a shit I didn't care if I died or not I really didn't at times I wanted to die I really wanted I didn't want to wake up just didn't want to wake up but I don't know what it is that particular time and I think the fact that I had these six people around me that clearly loved me and clearly wanted me to get better I had my dog the dog was only young at the time and I thought, I've got to do this. So, yeah, re-engaged with Forward Leads. Forward Leads got me back into detox at St. Anne's. Once again, the staff at St. Anne's, from Sharon that manages the centre or did at the time, to Linda in the kitchen, to all the staff there. They were just unbelievable, kind, loving people. And I can't praise them enough. They're some of the unsung heroes through lockdown as well, because they've kept on working throughout lockdown. Obviously, the centres haven't been open. But as we touched on at the start of this podcast, the increase in alcohol and drug issues has risen during lockdown more more people needing to access the services the staff have still been there they've been organizing zoom meetings they've been phoning people up just to check on how they're doing they're always there and they really have been the unsung heroes throughout this one thing that really grates with me is that early on in lockdown one of the politicians and i can't remember who it was announced very proudly on tv yes we put an extra three hundred and thirty-five thousand pounds into alcohol and drug services even if there are only a hundred of them around the country You'd have to be a maths genius to work out that's three and a half thousand pounds per centre. Forward Leeds, with all its staff and all its resources, their wage bill is more than 335,000 a year. But the money that it saves the NHS is vastly more than that. So all these services badly need more resources uh, because the work they do is unbelievable. But yet, to any of the staff, I will single out a few people. I'll single out Graham and Matt that run the Zooms and Justin that runs run the Zooms. Ian, my key worker there. Carla, my key worker at Five Ways. Sharon, all the staff at St. Anne's. Without you guys, I wouldn't be here. Simple as that. Let me just finish by saying that is why, again, I've been more than happy to do interviews for the press, for TV, for radio, whatever, to talk about forward leads because I can't talk about them too much. I can't thank them enough. And But if by spreading the word and hopefully trying to get a bit more funding for them, if by me talking about it helps in some small way, I'm up for that any day of the week. There might be people listening to this pod, Nick, who know someone who is an alcoholic, either recovering or in a relapse. So we can educate them. What are the best things they can do to support those people in their life and what are the things they should avoid saying if they can? The best thing they can avoid saying is saying, why don't you just stop? Just stop drinking. If it was that simple, there'd be no need for forward leads. There'd be no need for all these places. It's an addiction. It's an illness. You get to that point, you can't just stop drinking. And 
like I said earlier, it can threaten your life if you do stop drinking, if your drinking is bad enough. So that's the one thing. Do not say that to them. What I would say is just, I know how difficult it can be living with somebody with a problem. I mean, drinking wasn't the reason my marriage split up. It probably didn't help it, but it wasn't the reason. But I know, looking back now, the problems it caused my wife. And I feel dreadful about that. So it is difficult living with somebody with these issues. What I would say is just, if you could do, if you could have it within you to do what these six wonderful people did around me, just help me, support me understand me understand that i need to drink at times understand that i do want to get better but also understand that you can get better if you really want to and i'll refer to one of my favorite musicians a guy called frank turner i've sort of got to know him a bit over the last couple of years and he very kindly tweeted the bbc interview on his twitter feed the other day which has raised huge awareness because he's got much bigger following than i have but by frank turner doing that that would have saved a few lives. He's got a line in one of his songs called Get Better, which says broken people can get better if they really want to. And they can. Um, sorry, that's in a song called Recovery, not Get Better. Recovery. Broken people can get better if they really want to. And they can. I'm living proof of that. So, yeah, to anybody that's caring or with a loved one who's got drink problems, they can do it, but they will need help and support all the way through. But the help and support is there. The mutual aid meetings, the SMART meetings, SMART, S-M-A-R-T, stands for self-management and recovery training. If you go online, look at SMART UK. There's all sorts of training manuals there, manuals that can help not just the sufferer, but those caring for the sufferer. There are meetings all over the country. Look into those. There are obviously your, your fellowship meetings, your Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, your Narcotics Anonymous meetings. They're not for everybody. I get that. They're not personal for me, but they have helped a lot of people, the 12-step programs. Look at those as well. Al-Anon, which helps families of those with alcohol problems. We are very lucky in Leeds, having forward leads, as you, as you mentioned, Freddie, and the services, you know, the number of people that they help. I wish there were services like that nationwide because they're so badly needed. Another good thing, actually, that came out of the news thing I did is that people said it was good seeing somebody, in inverted commas, normal talking about this, as opposed to a celebrity. Because, you know, we've all seen celebs talking about how they've got over the drug issues and their alcohol issues. And I'm not saying that it's glorified, but they'll talk about how they went to Eric Clapton's rehab centre in the Bahamas or the Priory Clinic or Tony Adams' Sporting Chance Clinic and all these places. And people who are struggling might think, well, that's well and good for them if they can afford it because these places aren't cheap. But I'm living proof that you can access services that don't cost you anything and get you better. And I think that's why people were pleased to see somebody, Joe Public, talking about it who's got better. You don't have to be a millionaire to be able to access the services. Our final topic of conversation, Nick, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, circumstances including or excluding, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? It's really good at the minute. It's the best it's been in a long time. Probably because I'm here in France and I've just been chilling, sitting by the sea, reading, meditating, playing music, no stresses. My doctor upped my medication about a month ago now because it had been getting worse again through lockdown. You know, I recognise that. But the good thing is now that I spot when it is getting bad and I've got tools around me to work with. It's good at the minute, thanks. It's good. But I know that that won't last. I know that can change, but it's good at the minute. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, the ones that you've spoken about? And um, which ones have you found that work and which ones that haven't? You mentioned off air you liked journaling. Is that a tool that helps you? 
Yeah, I've kept a journal on and off for a long time. Maybe not on a daily basis, but I do write things down. I've got a notebook with me all the time. I'll put thoughts, ideas in. I got into letter writing a lot as well during lockdown. A good friend of mine was still is in rehab, actually. So I've been writing lots of letters to her and to other friends. So that helps and it helps you just get things off your chest. So yeah, writing things down helps. Writing songs helps. Playing music helps. Just general distraction. If you can feel yourself getting into that pit... Yeah, I'm lucky that I can pick up my guitar and play for a little bit. And before I know it, I've forgotten about everything and two hours have passed by. Other people, in the early days of lockdown, I got into online jigsaws to distract me. So that, that was a good thing. I mean, I think a good thing to do is that for anybody that's struggling with mental health or trying to get over addiction issues is either get back into an old hobby that you had in the past or get a new hobby. And that can be anything. It can be knitting model making, jigsaws, whatever, but just get yourself into a hobby, learn a new instrument, something like that. But also I think the big thing is talk to people. I mentioned the smart meetings that we have, and yes, they are for people with addiction issues, but yeah, we meet up two, three times a week or whatever, or through lockdown on Zoom, there's something every day. And we don't just sit there talking about our addictions. We talk about all the other problems that we've got in life, the sort of problems that everybody has. Mental health issues, depression, worries over finances, relationship issues, and so on. We talk about those things as well. And I always say that we're lucky to have those meetings because we have that facility that the rest of the population don't have. You know, we can get together and talk about these things. And just talking about them is often the best therapy. You spoke to me off air, Nick, about how you'd had feedback from people that you should consider becoming a counsellor yourself. Just tell me a bit about that and how you've grown in confidence to be more and more open as time has gone on. And also maybe around your friends as well in helping them if they have issues. Working in mental health is something that has been appealing to me more and more because I'm not trained in it, but obviously I've got a lot of personal experience in it. About two months ago, I spoke to, I mentioned the book that Catherine Taylor wrote, Life or Lie. And I spoke to Catherine about something a couple of months ago. And she didn't know me, but as we were chatting, we've got a mutual friend who was a former client of hers. As we were chatting, she said, so do you work in mental health, Nick? And I said, no. And she said, well, it sounds like you've missed your calling in life. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, just the way you're talking. You seem to know a lot about mental health and you seem to have a lot of empathy and you seem to be able to communicate well about it. And I said, that's interesting. And she said, well, it's something you should think about. This is somebody who's got 40 years experience in the field. So I mentioned it to a couple of the, the counsellors at Forward Leeds during Zoom meetings. And they said, mate, you know, you'd, you'd be perfect for it. And I said, well, can you give me any advice? And one of them gave me a call about it, actually. And it's will just read around the subject as much as you can. So I've been doing that. I've sort of been reading voraciously recently. And yeah, I'm sort of starting to look at online courses. <laughs> thing is i'm a typical addict i want it now i want to be able to do it now i don't want to have to do all the training but i know that you have to but yeah i mean if i can pass anything back through my experiences that that's what i'd like to do you know it's a bit like i don't know sports coach isn't it it's somebody who's been there seen it and done it i'm not saying that those who haven't can't teach you something but it's always good to be taught by somebody who has been through it and knows what you're going through yourself and just finally nick what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their addictions or their mental health or their mental health issues. We've got to make it better publicise the fact or make people more aware of the services that are on offer. My GP, although he's so supportive, he didn't really know that much about forward leads or about the rehab centres or the services that they offer. 
And I was gobsmacked by that. And actually, just before lockdown, I did suggest to my GP, I said, listen, if you want me to come in and talk to the doctors on your next training day about the services on offer, I'd be happy to do that. And he said, oh, that'd be fantastic because a lot of GPs aren't fully aware what's available and what's involved when you do access them. And I found that slightly unbelievable in a way that it isn't more widely known about. So I think if the word could be spread more about the service on offer, that would be beneficial. But also just accepting that having a mental health problem shouldn't be stigmatised. I think it's certainly far less stigmatised now than it used to be. It's just something that we get, like people get diabetes or high blood pressure or whatever. It's an illness that we get and it's nothing to be ashamed of. Just talk about it. I think things like Andy's Man Club and outfits like that are fantastic, the work they're doing in getting men to talk again. And even things like the PCA, Professional Critics Association. I know Charlie Roebuck spoke about them the other day, the work they've been doing. You know, I've got a number of good friends in, in professional cricket and a number of them who've had mental health problems, and male and female, actually. The help they've been given by the PCA is fantastic. So more organisations could reach out. And individual businesses, I think something like 20% of all absences through work, illness absences, are caused through depression, mental health issues. So if companies could put more into mental health side of things, either having facilities for the larger companies, facilities there for people to go and talk to, or giving people direction to professional facilities, that would help the business, it would help the economy, but more importantly, it would help the individual. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Nick for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're feeling very generous, please write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. Just check in.